on these three lives. Welcome, listeners, to the 30th premium chapter of the QAnon Anonymous podcast, the Temple OS and Terry Davis episode. As always, we are your hosts, Jake Rakotansky, Julian Field, and Travis View. This week, we are bringing you the story of Temple OS and its single-handed creator and developer, Terry Davis. Now, when I first heard of the operating system, I was fascinated, mostly because of the mind-boggling graphics attached to the project. It's a bright mix of DOS-era game graphics and contemporary art, and is accompanied by bizarre amounts of writing, much of it religious-themed. I earmarked the topic for further research and forgot about it for a few weeks. As the scheduled recording date for the Temple OS episode neared, I began doing some research. It very quickly became clear that this would not just be an episode on a goofy programming project. Terry suffered from debilitating mental illness, and I don't feel comfortable turning his life and life work into a cheap joke. Instead, uh, I'm going to attempt to paint a balanced picture of the man and his creation. After that exploration, we will be interviewing Jeff Atwood. He is the co-founder of Stack Overflow and Discourse.org. He also has a blog called Coding Horror. We'll be talking about Terry, online communities, and the time he was arrested in 1988 for building what's called a war dialer. So this week, to honor Terry, as well as the idea uh, of an open and free internet, we are sharing the premium episode with everybody. As Patreon supporters, you'll get it a few days before everyone else. We hope this helps more people learn about Terry and his unusual journey. Temple OS and its creator, Terry Davis, with Julian Field. Terrence Andrew Davis is born in West Allis, Wisconsin on December 15th, 1969. His father is an engineer and Terry is the seventh of eight children. He grows up using the Apple II and subsequently the Commodore 64, which he uses to teach himself assembly language. In 1990, he earns a Bachelor of Engineering at Arizona State and goes to work for Ticketmaster as a programmer. He continues his studies, and in 1994, he earns a master's degree in electrical engineering. In 96, when things start to get boring at Ticketmaster, Terry becomes interested in building satellite control systems instead. He gets in touch with some defense contractors, but nothing comes of it. That same year, Terry begins experiencing manic episodes and signs of schizophrenia. He describes, quote, people in suits following him around, but chalks this up to background checks carried out by his potential employers. Conspiracy theories begin to flare up in Terry's mind. He grows convinced that he is being tracked and that it might be related to a former computer control system project of his. Then, suddenly, Terry takes his car and leaves town, driving south with no apparent destination. He believes his car radio is speaking to him, commenting on his every move. In Marfa, Texas, Terry strips his car of side panels, looking for a tracking device that he never finds. Instead, he throws the car keys into the desert and starts walking roadside. Eventually, a cop stops Terry and convinces him to get in the passenger seat of his cruiser. Moments after the cop starts driving again, Terry opens the car door and ejects himself onto the road, breaking his collarbone. He is brought to a local hospital. Overhearing the doctors discussing, quote, artifacts when examining his x-rays, Terry believes aliens are involved. He gets spooked and decides to make a run for it. The cops catch him trying to steal a pickup truck to escape. They take him to jail. In a cell now, Terry decides to escape by, quote, flipping the circuit breaker. He jams his glasses into an electrical outlet and breaks them. At some point, Terry strips nude, attempting to shed the corporate logos on his clothing. He is taken to a mental hospital. 
During his stint there, Terry refuses food, believing the hospital is trying to drug him. And honestly, I mean, they might have been. Uh, at one point, he uses a chair to break a window. Two weeks after his admission, Terry is released from the mental hospital. During this period, Terry, formerly an atheist raised by Catholics, begins to seek communication with God. This stage of Terry's life is difficult to chronicle. The best information comes from a Motherboard article written by Jesse Hicks, a reporter who interviewed Terry almost two decades later. In the interview, Terry attempts to explain the profound changes he experienced in 1996. In the Bible, it says if you seek God, he will be fond of you. I was really seeking, and I was looking everywhere to see what he might be saying to me. Hicks goes on to explain in his article. Terry compares the experience to having a switch flipped, uh, one that revealed his deepest conscience and morality. Quote, I felt guilty for being such a technology advocate atheist, Terry says. He thought of the Amish and Little House on the Prairie, simple, decent ways of living with God. Terry returns to Arizona in July of 1996 and builds a three-axis milling machine to carry out what today is known as 3D printing. So pretty far uh, yeah. before his time. He nearly sets his apartment on fire, unfortunately, and subsequently abandons the idea. Soon after, he moves back in with his parents in Las Vegas, where he is diagnosed as schizophrenic and begins collecting social security checks. From 1996 to 2003, Terry is in and out of mental institutions due to recurrent manic episodes. In 2004, apparently frustrated by his repeated visits to the mental hospital, Terry leaves Las Vegas and travels to California. On a website called justrighteous.org, he posts long and indecipherable religious rants. He makes mention of a period of time spent in a homeless camp in Phoenix, Arizona. During this period, Terry's old operating system side project begins to take center stage. In 2006, Terry renames his J operating system to Luzthos. His introduction reads in part, Luzthos is for programming as entertainment. It empowers programmers with kernel privilege because it's fun. It allows full access to everything because it's fun. It has no bureaucracy because it's fun. It's the way it is by choice because it's fun. Luzthos is in no way a Windows or Linux wannabe. That would be pointless. Luzthos is not trying to win a prize for low resource usage or run on pathetic hardware. Low line count is a goal, though. It's 100,000 lines of code, including a 64-bit compiler, tools, and a graphics library. In 2008, Terry joins Reddit and Hacker News under the username Luzthos. His account is subsequently repeatedly hijacked by trolls. In 2009, the Luzthos subreddit is created. By 2010, Terry joins Twitter. This period is the beginning of Terry's relationship with the less savory side of the internet. His attempt at reaching out betray a great loneliness and a wish for a community. He really wants people to pay attention to his project and to, you know, discuss it online. But unfortunately, a lot of the uh, programming community doesn't really connect with what he's trying to accomplish. By 2011, he's on Facebook. By the end of that year, Terry joins Stack Overflow. Terry's interactions with these communities are turbulent due to his mental illness, obsession with religious imagery and text, and just the general awfulness of the internet. In July of 2011, a user on the Something Awful forums posts about his experiences with Luthos. It's a pretty horrifying post, the kind of stuff you'd expect from 4chan, and it mocks Terry's operating system, calling it a, quote, piece of shit. Terry, once an in-joke among developers, quickly grows into a figure known by the broader internet forum community. At the same time, Terry gets banned from multiple online communities due to his increasingly aggressive behavior and high volume of posting. 
2011 sees Terry's mental condition deteriorating and his posts to Hacker News increase. In October, in between innocuous tweets about loose those updates, Terry writes, I hate the CIA. They operate by blackmail. They are scum. They got the Saudi king by the short hairs. Another tweet from the same day reads, We'll settle in God's court. The single tweet that he makes in November is just a normal update again. But then on December 28th, he writes a series of very worrisome tweets. One states, Kill CIA people, hit them with cars, and run. They are scum. This tweet makes reference to something Terry has long claimed in his posts, that he killed a CIA agent in 1999. His tweets go on to claim that his parents, psychiatrists, actors, and the FBI are all conspiring to fuck with him. So it's like a gang stalking kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In 2012, Terry renames the project Sparrow OS. That year also sees him dialing up the religious rhetoric and, confusingly, his use of the N-word. In 2013, the Kiwi Farms Forum grows interested in Terry. For the layperson, Kiwi Farms is a very for the layperson, Kiwi Farms is very similar to 4 and 8chan. It was also founded by a teenager and has been repeatedly involved in harassment campaigns, child pornography, etc. More recently, it hosted the live stream and manifesto of Brenton Tarrant, the perpetrator of the 2019 Christchurch shooting. So Kiwi Farms begins posting about Terry, and from 2013 onwards, his life becomes increasingly intertwined with forum and Chan culture. 2013 is also the year that Terry's project receives his final name, Temple OS. Around this time, Terry also dubs his version of the C++ programming language, Holy C. Terry states on the Temple OS 1.0 front page, God's temple is finished. Now, God kills CIA until it spreads. The page also features questions Terry asked God with answers, but he soon scuttles this again and zeroes in on a particular application within Temple OS called After Egypt. He explains that it functions as an oracle, which is, quote, like a Ouija board or Christian tongues. Touchingly, Terry explains that God will speak to you, quote, as long as you've made an offering such as praise, a hymn, a poem, or comic, praise sandcastles, snowmen, popcorn, and bubbles, Love effort is like when you pick a greeting card. You get back the love you put in. What I like about this passage is that it puts forward Terry's creative, loving side, which as his mental health deteriorates, he steadily loses access to. The core of what he's saying, that creativity is a way to make an offering of love, and that this offering is a form of praise for the small things in everyday life, aligns with a lot of different mystical traditions from around the world. At this point, and before we chart Terry's complicated path from 2013 until his passing, I'd like to take a moment to honor the art and creativity that went into Terry Davis's Opus to God. Let's start with the aforementioned After Egypt program. Here is the beginning of Terry's demo video. This is Temple OS. We're going to look at the oracle in Temple OS. The After Egypt game is about Moses and the uh, Jews in the desert. Um, after they left Egypt, but before they got to the Promised Land. So the music you hear was actually composed by Terry, uh, and the game opens with Moses shrouded in white standing in the desert. He is wielding a large stick, puncturing a rock with it. A flow of water comes from the resulting crack. The bottom of the screen says, Leaving all behind, they fled, found themselves in a desert. A large crowd of tiny human figures then gather in a desert expanse, making their way to a mountain in the distance. The pixel art in all of Terry's work is rudimentary but charming. 
The user is then presented with a burning bush, Moses sitting cross-legged on the nearby mountaintop. A timer cycles through numbers and letters, and you can press OK to stop it, generating a response from God or a passage from the Bible. Beneath the OK button, Terry clarifies, The Holy Spirit can puppet you. Below this is printed, God says, and some ellipses, awaiting your click to generate the divine response of Terry's oracle. In his demo video, Terry goes through the process himself. So the critical point is you get out of prayer what you put into it. So whatever, you're supposed to praise God. So let's see, maybe I'll praise him for uh, uh, hermit crabs. I like hermit crabs. That's what I'll praise him for. So, I mean, I, I did I did like that because there's something almost Taoist about his worship of like small mm-hmm. details like this yeah. animal, this object. Um, I like that 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 reverence that, that Terry uh, has like kind of inside him. Uh, so in this case, what pops up in response is several passages from Ezekiel chapter 24. Terry reads the passage and then pulls up a menu of things you can do in the application. Options include break camp, walk with God, view clouds, hold court make water, battle, and beg for meat. It's a bit like Oregon Trail. Events occur that you must make choices regarding. This is where things get pretty weird. The first one that comes up in the video is a woman commits blasphemy again. You can either show mercy, punish, or really punish. This is followed by a second event in in, uh, his demo and just says a child commits blasphemy. In this case, Terry chooses to really punish the child. It's unclear whether the choice impacts the game at all. Um, Another video I watched showed the limits of the random event generator as Terry was forced to really punish a child who had committed adultery with another child. So you can see that it's just kind of filling it in randomly and, you know, he kind of just has to, to roll with it. Like I said, all the music in Temple OS is written by Terry and there's an entire segment of the operating system dedicated to hymns, compositions accompanied by lyrics flashing by in time with the music. These are also written by Terry. Probably the most famous hymn is simply called Risen. It has been given the remix and cover treatment by multiple YouTube personalities, but even in its original form, there's something really beautiful about it. So the user who posted this video explains uh, beneath it. R.I.P. Terry Davis. The CIA N-words took the original archive down along with the hymn. Although this may seem off the wall, it bears explaining that CIA N-words was something Terry referenced often. He blamed most of his woes on these imaginary entities that haunted his every waking hour. He would also use the term to refer to anyone who criticized the operating system. A certain reverence for Terry, both tongue-in-cheek and not, exists in the online community. This video, for example, has someone commenting, quote, He lives on in my ThinkPad T420 and my heart, King Terry's Templars. The bird you can briefly hear in the background of the video is named Percival and has also achieved a sort of cult status for those following Terry online. So how did Terry get so enmeshed in these seemingly niche online communities and what effect did it have on him? Well, in a long documentary video on the man and his operating system, Frederick Knudsen has done a fantastic job at chronicling the exhausting and depressing interactions between Terry and forums like Hacker News, Kiwi Farms, and 4chan. Yes, unfortunately, 4chan eventually gets involved. As Terry's mental health continues to deteriorate, his rhetoric and posts become aggressive and even more disconnected from reality. This amuses the forum kids who take a renewed interest in him. 
One post in particular drew a lot of attention. It was entitled, quote, Why the CIA Must Surrender to the IRA. Confusingly, Terry has now brought the Irish Republican Army into the mix, but that's just the tip of the iceberg here. Here is how the text opens. Obama and the atheist CIA wake up each day and ask, how can we fuck God today? I know, we'll make nuns perform abortions. We make homos dance naked in Russian churches in front of old church ladies. Isn't that hilarious? Uh, we'll make a complete mockery of marriage because, after all, N-words don't have fathers and that's not fair. My wife Michelle wants no cupcakes for school birthdays because of single mom. We'll make God hated just for pedophiles and crazy insane sand N-words. We'll drink fetus soup with the queen and celebrate the end of births. Having children is pedophilic. We'll make every five-year-old African girl learn how to put on a condom. Ugh. We'll make churches no longer tax-exempt. Giggle. We'll make all the conservative sons into liberal atheist homos. Giggle. We'll bring in Mexicans to ensure Democratic votes. The USA will be a slum like Mexico, but I don't care. On second thought, I love white people. Come back. How come white people don't have kids? Oh yeah, we made the white people greedy, coveting the wealth of the rich. The IRA is like the NRA, but for computers. The CIA wants all code in the cloud under their lock and key. They want to ban compilers and make people think HTML is computer programming. They want to evaporate desktops so you have no local computer, just massive cloud computers. The rest of the passage devolves into increasingly technical language explaining that, quote, the CIA and British Northern Irish are waging a campaign to keep people ignorant and impotent by making new acronyms that conceal knowledge of strategic low-level computer concepts. More than anything else, it is apparent that Terry's schizophrenia has been heavily influenced by right-wing conspiracy theories floating around the internet. Terry begins streaming himself in 2016, and some of his streams have him simply browsing the internet. One of his favorite websites? The Drudge Report. This is a website that, since the mid-90s, has been spreading a slew of conspiracy theories aimed at the Democratic Party, including Bill Clinton's illegitimate child, Obama birtherism, and multiple conspiracy theories surrounding the 2017 Las Vegas massacre. Terry's blog posts continue to deteriorate, and he declares himself, quote, high priest of God's temple. One recurring theme is an alleged series of sexual experiences ranging back to childhood, some with family members. It is unclear whether these actually occurred. What stood out to me across all of Terry's output is his continual references to being in prison. Although often accompanied by claims about the CIA N-words, these references to prison speak to a man who feels completely trapped by his own deteriorating mental and physical health. As somebody who has struggled with mental illness throughout adulthood, including hypomanic phases, I profoundly related to this feeling. It kind of took me back to my teenage years when I read Sylvia Plath's book, The Bell Jar, and related to her feeling of moving through the world inside a sort of invisible prison that only I could see. Terry, in one of his streams, expresses similar sentiments. This is a rather lengthy passage, but I think it sums up Terry's dilemma. Percival, my bird, is dying. Earlier today, uh, there was a Bible passage about... Uh, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, but not one falls to the ground without the father's notice. So, Percival started coughing up blood about a month ago. Then he got a little bit better, but uh, I think he's gotten worse. So, this is kind of a death watch, so I'm waiting for him to die. <laughs> 
I live in kind of an old environment. All I do is I go to dentists and doctors. My parents go to dentists and doctors. And that's all we do. We watch TV. They go to the casino. I don't watch TV. I watch. Anyway, so it's kind of... I feel like I've... Uh, I don't really have any... Uh, what? I made God's temple. And now I'm waiting for something to happen. I've been fighting to bring it to fruition. But I'm in some kind of prison or something. So basically now I just kind of kill time. But I'm God's high priest, so there's nothing better to do with your time than kill time with Mr. God and enjoy divine intellect all day long. So one thing to note here is that you know, Terry has basically developed an operating system that's like hyper complex, it takes so much effort. So a lot of the kind of more technical sided fans that he had were really interested in, in what he'd done. And it, it was like a kind of like a useless endeavor in a way, because it's like designing an operating system is. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, usually the people design operating systems with uh, UX in mind. They, they wanted to be you know, to, you know, run applications easily and sort of uh, the goal is to make it as understandable as possible. But he just made it so just complex because he was like it was like it was more like an operating system that was sort of a, a manifestation of his own particular mental illnesses yeah, he was struggling it, with. It was yeah. a window into another world. I mean, in a way it was, uh, and he he created so many game demos as part of it and like all this pixel art and he wrote like so many songs that went into it. And I mean, it's the, his, his, um, the operating system was actually exposed recently in France, like at a contemporary art, uh, thing. Wow. So like his work has been recognized, uh, and, and you'll see that it, it becomes kind of more recognized as his um, as he gets more attention because things become a little more extreme in his life. I mean, obviously, you've already seen a bit of that turn. But so as time went on, Terry's streams grew longer and longer. One time he streamed for more than 12 hours straight, uh, emaciated and now with noticeable physical tics. The communities watching and interacting with Terry did not make things better. Having obtained his phone number, Terry unfortunately provided it in his operating system along with his home address. Trolls would call the number and send chat messages to get him riled up. This sadistic, mindless behavior is unfortunately par for course in these communities as we've explored on past episodes, especially our 4chan and 8chan episode. Terry Davis uh, grows infatuated with a woman who goes by Physics Girl. She's a science YouTuber with over 1.3 million subscribers. At the time, she's in her late 20s. Terry attempts to communicate with her in multiple ways, all to no avail. The trolls then impersonate her, tormenting Terry further. He begins to believe he is married to Physics Girl. Terry gets banned from multiple services because trolls impersonating Physics Girl send him porn that he accidentally opens on stream. He begins using his own website to host his videos and streams. His mental and physical state deteriorate further. Terry begins doing live streams as he walks around his neighborhood. At one point, he almost gets into a physical altercation after calling a black guy the N-word in his own neighborhood. The guy's response, quote, I'm walking to the store, the same store I see you walking to every damn day. And I've never said nothing to you in my life. Terry stops taking his antipsychotics. He begins drinking frequently. He streams himself being verbally abusive to his parents. At some point, forum kids raise enough money through GoFundMe to purchase him a drum kit. On the day he receives it and sets it up in August of 2017, 
he is arrested for battery and domestic violence for attacking his father in their home. He goes to jail and then to a mental hospital. Terry is forced to move out of his parents' home. Now homeless, he lives in his van. Through his website, Terry solicits donations. The 4chan, 8chan, and Kiwi Farms posters contribute money. Quote, I'm living off of the donations of children, Terry explains in one of his phone streams. At this point, he spends most of his time smoking in a park and visiting the public library. In September of 2017, he is arrested again for open, gross lewdness in Clark County, Nevada. This was apparently caused by him publicly urinating near his van. He fails to appear in court in October. Wanted posters go up. He is arrested again in Pahrump, Nevada. This time, Jim Watkins, the pig farmer living in the Philippines who owns and runs 8chan, pays Terry's bail. Terry is released onto the streets again. He returns to streaming from his van. He records videos for Physics Girl, who he still believes he is married to. In many of these, Terry masturbates. He begins to believe he is in an actual jail cell, having hallucinations of being in a van. He fails to appear in court in January of 2018 for his arraignment. Having lost his van and laptop, Terry now streams exclusively from his phone, often singing and dancing. People figure out where he is, and some begin posting photos hanging out with him. Internet kids carry out multiple in-person interviews with Terry, usually respectful, during which he answers their questions about programming in a very lucid way. This is actually a pattern throughout Terry's mental illness. It seems that his passion for programming acted as a focal point for his mind. On August 18th, 2018, Terry is struck by a train on some tracks near the public library he frequents in The Dalles, Oregon. A relative of Terry's writes a Facebook post commemorating him and thanking the online communities for their financial support. Rest in peace, Terry Davis. Hey. I mean, I yeah. mean it's a yeah, it's an incredible tragic story. Um, but I mean, at the same time, I feel like as as someone has like, you know, sometimes too online, I feel like I feel like there's a for everyone who's like really invested in Joyce technology in any way, there's a, a little bit of Terry Davis in them anyway. Yeah. Is that they're, you know, we're it's like we all sort of like, you know, uh build build things or, you know, create content. You know, sometimes it's a way to sort of like escape a prison we feel like we're in or to uh or to like manipulate this sort of this digital world in a way that sort of makes us feel better about whatever particular mental issues we may be struggling with yeah um yeah yeah it's uh it's 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 awful it's incredible it i think it was interesting uh that i mean obviously i don't know the exact care that terry received but he was diagnosed he had medication and his parents had a place for him to stay um but you know there's no doubt that the fact that he dealt with schizophrenia but also um you know, had a tendency towards isolation because he likes programming and had that kind of focused, obsessive personality that a lot of programmers mm-hmm. have and that we'll, we'll hear about a little bit in the upcoming interview uh, with the co-founder of, of Stack Overflow. But um, I think that w- you can see the feedback loop and I, I can't say that it caused or, but it certainly catalyzed, I think, his mental illness, like interacting with Chan culture. Essentially what you're doing uh, and he didn't really choose that. Um, you know, I think he started advertising through Hacker News. He ended up on Reddit. like, And that stuff kind of is a connecting bridge to right. some of the weirder communities um, who took notice when shit got 
darker for him when he started because uh, he wasn't someone just throwing out the n-word he didn't even seem particularly right wing until his schizophrenia developed further like he was a seemingly relatively liberal guy who uh, got a master's in electrical engineering and was like a crazy good programmer who could run like who could uh, write operating systems and stuff like that he, he had a normal job yeah um and so, uh, you know, yeah, like I think that 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 feedback loop uh, between a person who has uh, vulnerabilities to mental illness and these communities that, I mean, even if not everyone involved is like a terrible person, they're probably teenagers and teenagers have like an embryonic yeah. uh, conscience and an embryonic sense of morality. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, yeah, they're not, they sh certainly I wouldn't trust a teenager uh, to take care of, a, of an older mentally ill person because you can't really parse no, it. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, I, I think for them, it's, it's, they're poking the sleeping dragon, you know, they want to, oh, yeah. they want to see, you know, what they can say that can get, that can get a rise so they can cackle yeah. and giggle. And then they, they also feel bad for him, but you know, it's like this weird thing with the chance that cruel kind Kind of amusement right mm -hmm. where you feel sorry for someone but you're also contributing pretty actively to their deterioration and and right. i think it's um also what's interesting i think is uh and and again we'll discuss this a little bit in the upcoming interview but the development of programming from something that's a very kind of lonely endeavor in the 80s and 90s to something that's like a hyper networked kind of always on version using github using question and answer websites like stack overflow using streaming yeah. services like it has profoundly changed um how much contact uh, people who like kind of tend towards programming in their personality, right. like the amount of contact they have with the world. And like, yeah, now you have these feedback loops happening that didn't happen before. And that's not just for programming. It's for like all Chan culture. Like these feedback loops did not exist previously. And now we're seeing all these effects of these of what it means to be always on and always networked. Right. Yeah, like, yeah. who does that put into contact with each other? What does it mean? And, and you know, what kind of behaviors does it exacerbate? Uh, yeah. And who, who, stays, who does it empower? Yeah. Who stays in those communities? Because, mm -hmm. you know, so many people, you you know, it's like you go into vote or you go into 4chan, you take one look and you go like, Ugh, like this just doesn't feel yeah. good. You know, it feels bad. But then you you have to wonder, you know, who looks at that stuff and goes, oh, boy, yeah. like I want to stay and hang out and, 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 yeah, and you know, Kiwi be Farms, a part of it. Kiwi Farms is essentially like what teenagers do, which is they find stuff to make fun of and they make fun of it. And so they make fun of what they call lol cows, which are like personalities online that are funny or ridiculous in some way. And the problem is that for them, there's no difference between Terry and like, you know, some fundamentalist or, Christian running a stupid church somewhere who right. has power, control, a home, money. You know, they don't understand right. the difference between someone who's uh, stable or unstable. It's Not all really. the absurd content. It's all, so. yeah. it's all content. That's yeah. what it is. It's all content. And like, it is interesting that in, in, in that basically last year of his life, people were seeking him out. And it does seem like there was, yeah, there was a certain amount of like, oh, look, it's us with him. But like, they would buy him food. They would interview him. And the interviews were incredible because he sits and talks like with total clarity. Mm -hmm. At the end of his life, he was almost like slurring his words to the point of incomprehensibility. Uh, when he was online, he didn't make any sense. But if you talk to him about programming, the guy was able to answer all these questions for like people who are younger programmers. And I, I think there's something about meeting someone physically. Not that I'm saying it's better for him, but I think those kids, maybe it's a joke until the point where they sit down with a guy. Oh, yeah. But then they have to eat a McDonald's meal with someone who actually has, um, you know, mental illness and who's clearly in a vulnerable state. And it, they became a lot 
their yeah. their their behavior changed and so it does it i think it speaks to like yeah how do you bring uh, online offline emotionally for teenagers and i think like that, how, how do you how can you do that i think that that's often the case you know when we were when we were growing up and um you know we didn't have social media we didn't have internet you know when you said something to somebody, another kid, and you hurt their feelings, and you saw the expression on their face, and you saw what it looked like exactly. to, to hurt another individual, you learned something there. It, yeah, um, it was awful. I remember once I had uh, there was a new kid. There was a new kid at our school, and um, he, uh, you know, he's kind of a chubby kid. He was like from the south, so he had an accent. And, People made fun of him. And uh, I had been a new kid as well, you know, a couple years beforehand. And yeah. so and so I, you know, I, I sort of related to what he was going through and, and you know, didn't, you know, I we, we weren't actively buddies, but I was really nice to him. And um, one of my sort of like crony friends, I sort of ended up kind of hanging out with the bullies because to keep myself from being bullied. Yeah, I, I sort of befriended them so that they, you know, they, you know, I would sort of be safe from their, you know, their attentions. And they pulled me aside and they were like, oh, you have to tell, um, you know, this kid that you don't want to be friends with them anymore or else, you know, or else we won't be friends with you. And I, I remember it so clearly. I went up to him. We were in a dress. We were in a locker room. Um, we were in a locker room and uh, we were getting ready for gym class or stuff, changing into our gym uniforms. And I walked up to him and I was like, I'm sorry, uh, I don't want to be friends with you anymore. And the And I will never forget the look on his face when we, when he looked back at me and it was something that I kept with me for years and years afterwards. You know, I don't have a ton of regrets in yeah. my life, but this was something that I really, I felt really bad about. Yeah. And like in an online setting, you don't have that physical feedback. You don't have that physical. Yeah. Thing. So at worst, maybe like, let's say like you do something like that on a forum, whatever you mm -hmm. tell someone, you know, fuck off. I don't care about you. And then you'd unfriend yeah. them or do something online. Maybe in the text that they like later write, you might feel an emotion, yeah. but my God, it, we're really living in unilateral relationships at this point where it's yeah. like we act and then something is experienced on the other side and we don't see it. You and don't then see we, it. You and don't then there's feel just it. the feedback afterward. It's like, it's a very bizarre thing. And it's something that I know that like growing up sitting in front of Facebook, I'm like, I don't fucking do Facebook timeline anymore. Like yeah. I'd rather the crazy toxic bullshit of Twitter uh, because it's just less personal to be honest. Yeah. But Facebook, yeah. you, you scroll and you learn something like, for example, you're presented with the fact that like, let's say someone that you once dated or, 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 or loved or whatever, like has moved on and this is with someone new yeah. and the impact of that information being handed to you has no anchor or tether in reality. No one's telling you it. Yeah. There's not, there's no, right. it's, it's just, there, it's content. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's just content. It's just, except a, of course it interacts with your mind in a way. And so then you're sitting in front of this screen. That's nothing, alone. by the way. That's You're nothing. alone. It's, it's just ones and zeros yeah. with an energy current But it's flowing as it. if yeah. someone sat you down and was like, hey, this happened. But there's no one there. Yeah. So it, it is a very bizarre thing. And I think, you know, for, for, for young people who have tendencies, I mean, there's a reason why a lot of these bored kids are like, yeah, we're autistic, we're autistic. Like, if you have problems with social skills, if you... Um, like I said, are taking a little more time to incubate a conscience or mm -hmm. or like a moral system to understand the world. And like you're so vulnerable to, to falling in with this shit. And right. then that, that's that's you in a kind of high school style structure with way more toxic weirdos that are well, 25, 26 and still don't have a conscience. And then it's like feedback loops. Yeah. People eventually do. Yeah. You know, like and it's uh, also physical ops. It's also perfect for you. You know, you 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 can immediately understand why certain people feel a sense of um, purpose and 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 uh, uh, home feeling in these places is because the thing that they have the most trouble 
sort of wrapping their brains around, which is, you know, the feelings of another person, you know, yeah. um, you know, they're so disconnected from that in real life. The Internet is a place where that factor is taken out. Yeah. So, you know, it's not even that, the, you know, they don't have to feel like they're only 50 percent involved. They're 100 yeah. percent in because, you know, that's all it is. It's, but like, let's say you've watched 100 people break down on cams. A normal kid who has never experienced the internet has only seen one or two people break down and it's like a big deal in their lives because yeah. they're like, damn, that's what it's like when a person really breaks down. Yeah. But if you're just watching it all fucking day, who cares? If you've, you've been watching that mixed in with beheading videos, you've been watching yeah. that mixed in with like video game bullshit streams. You've yeah. been, like it's all just bullshit flow of content. And I think I don't think it's inherently pure evil. Like it's just a different way of existing on Earth yes. as human beings. And it's like we're still feeling out like how does that work? And I think you know, the, the upcoming interview as well, what we explore a little bit is like, how do you build a community that doesn't devolve into this? Well, like, is it possible? Well, I mean, I, that's still a, a question mark a for me. It's a great question mark. Yeah, because what I was going to say is that what it seems like is it seems like the majority of, of content, let's say, that when given the chance to be either positive or to, you know, go negative and bully and make fun of, it always seems to go to the right. Yeah. You know, it it's it's it, I don't know if it's easier or if we all feel so bad about ourselves. Well, Here, but, but, but when you're a teenager or young, you are inherently reactionary in a way. Yeah. You're like if you if you've never seen someone uh, that looks a certain way, you're going to be probably a bit mean and weird and standoffish to them. Like, yeah, it's 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 when you develop your moral framework and your critical thinking that then you're able to process the world in a, in a way that isn't just give me mine. I want mine. You're someone from the outside and you're bad. Yeah. You know, it's I mean, it starts with the classic girls are bad. God, do you know, right. Boys rule. And it's like, right. but it, you hopefully you grow out of that. But if you don't, you're a fucking incel and then maybe you commit a shooting or yeah. whatever. It's like, and you it's have these a weird, place. that's the thing is like, you have a place to incubate bubbles, these ideas. They're yeah. bubbles of arrested development and you can get caught in them. An interview with Jeff Atwood. Jeff Atwood is the co-founder of Stack Overflow and Discourse.org. He is also the author of the popular blog, Coding Horror. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Yeah, thanks for having me. So as you know, on this episode, we are examining uh, Temple OS and Terry, obviously the creator of it. There's something about the story that resonates with sort of your average programmer. You can sort of see yourself a little bit in this guy. Can you explain what part of programming uh, makes programmers relate to uh, what Terry was doing? Historically, it's very inward looking. It's 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 just you and the computer kind of communing. It is almost like a relationship with God. You're dealing with this tiny little world where the, their rules are completely arbitrary and, and frankly nonsensical in a lot of ways, but they have their own internal consistency, right? There's something really powerful about that. And I think that cuts the heart of what the story is. Like he turned so far inward that he kind of lost sight of other people. The definition of programming has kind of changed because everything is so connected. Like the idea of programming without a connection to the internet just seems really quaint at this point. Like what could you even do? How could you even do it? But that's how it was back in the day, right? Like you would just program sort of by yourself and you would maybe connect via modem occasionally to uh, sort of multiplayer spaces, but it wasn't the norm. Uh, we weren't connected 24-7 like we are now. So when you look at Temple S, you're like, wow, this is... It's almost like an art project, right? Like, and I think that's another reason people were kind of sympathetic to it. They were like, well, he's creating art, right? He's not really hurting anybody. He's building this thing 
that's this, you know, t- literally a temple. It's called Temple OS, right? And it's interesting, right? Like it's interesting in maybe kind of very unusual ways, but hey, you cannot say that it is not interesting, which is true of a lot of boring line of business apps you're going to work on as a developer. It's going to be really boring, right? Like, yay, I, I implemented a feature, you know, three lines of text in a banking app. It's like, well, nobody cares, right? That's super boring. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but TemploS was not boring, right? So I think they also empathize with that as well. And again, there's this tension between sort of the modern programming, which is hyper-social, and then classic program, which is hyper like antisocial, honestly. So there's those tensions as well that we've really turned the corner on. You know, programming is like super mega group activity now. And also programming affects so many more people now because everybody carries a smartphone. I mean, programming until like, gosh, really 2014, I mean, you would go to work and use a computer, you know, maybe depending on your job, but you didn't really carry computers around all the time. But now it's just normal for people to carry a computer in their pocket. And that is a very recent development frankly like we're we're still grappling with what that means as, as a society so that means programmers now have this much wider interface to the world right like now we impact a lot more people and it's easier for us to communicate with other programmers so the nature of the job has really changed so speaking of how things have really changed i'd like to take a little trip back to 1988 you were 17 at the time, and uh, you know the communication systems were still pretty basic. You describe uh, 9,600 modems as being, you know, the blazing uh, hot latest thing. Um, and you reacted at the time to your lack of funds and the difficulties of, you know, getting in contact with other people on on BBS boards and stuff, because uh, you guys were all, you know, uh, somewhat involved in wares. Um, and you built something called the hacking construction set. Can you explain what this was and what the intention was there? This is really the classic movie War Games, which I don't know how many people have seen that movie at this point. It came out in like 1984, I think. But uh, basically, it used to be really expensive to make long-distance phone calls. That's at the root of all this. And anytime you wanted to you know, jo- connect to other computers, basically, you had to make a long-distance phone call to do anything interesting. This all seems really quaint. And here's the internet, by the way. This all seems insane, frankly. That we, It doesn't even make sense that I'm describing. It's like, why would you do that? Like, I don't know why we did that. That's what we had, right? Like, So you had to make all these long-distance phone calls to do anything interesting with a computer involving other people. So there were two things. It was very expensive to make long-distance phone calls. And uh, also, like, that's the only way you could talk to other computer users, right? So it, it, it reflected two things. Like, one, your desire to really communicate with other people, right? Like I wanna be a part of the scene and to be a part of the scene, you have to talk to other people that love computers and just dealing with the communication networks at the time, which were extremely expensive long distance calls. Like, I mean, I wanna say like 30 cents a minute or more, depending on where you were calling. So in order to get around that, you would find um, companies that that gave I don't want to say free phone calls. They had phone cards, right? Like a phone card. Mm-hmm. You would dial a number, like a 1-800 number. Then you would enter like a six-digit code on your touchtone phone or even rotary phone back in the day. This was still a thing back then, right? Rotary. Uh, and then if you entered the right code, you could then make a long-distance phone call with that company paying for it. So the, the art was to come up with these codes. So what's called a war dialer would just dial these numbers, these 800 numbers, whatever it was, uh, enter the codes and try to find a working code. So you would dial a modem on the other end. If, if the modem if the modem picked up, you know you had a successful code. So it was really just brute force. There was nothing really elegant about it. And what I built was on the Apple II hacking construction kit was a tool for dialing up a bunch of these numbers, you know, trying random codes and keeping track of which ones worked and 
most of them didn't, right? Just basically keeping track of what worked. And there wasn't really a whole lot magical to it, but it was just a programming exercise for me, honestly. Like, I, I enjoyed creating it. Like, it was necessary for some of the stuff I was trying to do because as a kid, like, I don't have a huge budget. Like, if I, if, if I didn't... I actually generated long distance bills of like a thousand dollars a month for my parents, which was not great for them. Right. Yeah. So in order not to do that, I needed to have these codes. So I was like, well, I'll just write some software that attempts to do this. Right. And there were other tools that did this. I didn't have to write a war dialer. There were other war dialers, but I was like, no, I want to try writing a war dialer. So I did. And that's what the hacking construction set is. It strikes me as uh, very interesting that, you know, you describe kind of how programming, went from a, an isolating or, or more or less isolated uh, activity um, to a more social activity. But it seems like even in 1988, you were looking for that more social element. So, you know, do you think that uh, your dreams of a more social uh, and more community-based uh, development scene or even, uh, you know, illicit, slightly illicit uh, development scenes, do you think that's come to pass? I do. And it's interesting because there is that tension of, like, you want isolation. Like, I think the reason... I sought out computers was that they're a lot easier to understand than people. They still don't really make sense. The rules are frankly insane for computers. And I still actually don't think being a programmer is that great of a job. Like there's all this tension around, you know, everybody should be a programmer. I was like, well, I don't really think everyone should be a programmer in the same sense that I don't think everybody should be a plumber. Like it just doesn't really make sense at some level to me. Like I like programming, but I wouldn't be like, this is the best job anyone can possibly have in their life. I don't yeah. agree with that. Like, I don't understand, like, why so many people are so obsessed with, with making programming into this, you know, mythical occupation that's the, the pinnacle of what you can achieve as humans. Like, I don't believe that. Like, ultimately, we're all creating stuff. We're, we're creators, right? That's the interesting part of what we're doing. Like, and, and even Temple OS, you can see it's like, well, he created something that was really kind of interesting. Not necessarily useful, <laughs> but interesting. And that's kind of the goal, right? It doesn't really matter if you're a programmer or a plumber or like whatever the hell it is you do. That's not the important part. The important part is that you're creating things that are interesting and maybe useful to the world. So programming is just one way to do that. So yeah, like, I don't know. There's this this tension within the field of, like, um, you know, the balance between communing with the computer, which is really part of the job, right? Like, and, and I think one of the risks of being a programmer is that it kind of turns you into an asshole at some level because the computer is so unforgiving. One thing you have to understand with interacting with the computer is the computer is a very harsh god. If you look at computers as god, like, they hate you because if you get the tiniest thing wrong, everything comes crashing down like the classic if you look this up and this has actually happened you know i misplaced a semicolon therefore a rocket blew up right like this is just normal in programming like yeah. it's unbelievably unforgiving to the point that it's like actually kind of brutal as a job like it you spend half your time dealing with like tiny things going wrong that screw you utterly right like it's just kind of like noxious really yeah. honestly and it kind of makes you a, pe a pedant in mm -hmm. a lot of ways because you're constantly thinking what what are the wrong things you can do here what are the subtleties here what are the tiny weird little rules they're going to bite us about this so if you think about the kind of people you interact with in the world the type of people that are constantly analyzing your conversation thinking here are the little things that you just got wrong with what you just said yeah you're going to hate those people they're checking your they're conversational code 
they're super annoying, right? Because it's like, well, look, just ignore all that. You know what I meant, right? Like, you know what I meant? But computers yeah. do not know what you meant. Like, mm. they, they, are, they are those people 24-7. And if you work with a computer long enough, it kind of turns you into a computer at some level. Like, you start thinking like that because it's a protection mechanism. You have to think like that to get the code to do what you want to do and to write code that doesn't blow up constantly and the rocket doesn't explode. You have to be unbelievably anal about every tiny little thing that goes on. And it bleeds over into your life, man. Like, it really does. Like, if you look at Hacker News and other, like, programmer communities, they have reputations for being incredibly pedantic, right? And just to the point that they're super annoying to interact with. I don't know if you remember, in Saturday Night Live, there was a classic skit for the IT guy. Do you remember this one? Where he would come in and try to help, and he would constantly just yell at people. He was like, no. And his classic line was, move. He would, like, come in and talk to people. He was like, get out of the way so I can actually fix this for you because you don't know what you're doing, right? Like, and you're yeah. never going to get this right. Um, that is the classic sort of archetype of a person, you know, a programmer, right? And it's kind of true. It doesn't have to be. I'm not saying that it makes you into that, but it is a very real occupational hazard yeah. in the job. And, you know, the, our I am very tolerant of pedantry because I know it kind of comes with the job. But a lot of people that aren't view programmers as like just these terrible, terrible people because of all the pedantry, right? And I'm like, well, you know, I, I don't like it, but I understand it, right? And yeah, it just kind of comes with the territory. And so speaking of kind of consequences for coding uh, and, you know, unforgiving circumstances, you had a little bit of a, of a run-in in 1988 due to your uh, development of the hacking construction set. Can you describe what happened there? Well, it was illegal. I mean, because I was essentially, <laughs> right, yeah. like I was making phone calls that were bill not billed to me. They were billed to some whoever owned the number mm -hmm. that on the card, the phone card, right? They were billed to that person. So eventually that caught up to me um, and, you know, the police showed up and I actually was working at Safeway at the time. And I remember, I remember that call. It's like, yeah, your mom says you got to come home because there's like police at the house. Uh, so, yeah, that was and then I, we had to hire a lawyer and, you know, luckily it was right before I went to college. So, yeah, all that stuff had to be dealt with. And it was a risk of doing that kind of stuff. Right. Like it wasn't exactly legal. So, you know, I. Well, I mean, it seems like you definitely pivoted a little bit. You were the co-founder of Stack Overflow, which has now evolved into a network of sites called Stack Exchange. So when you created that, like, what did you and your partners have in mind? The, the problem was that, you know, there was a site called Experts Exchange, which can also be sell, spelled Expert Sex Change. So it has like a dash in oh, the title. Amazing. So it's very important where you put that dash. Otherwise, you get Expert Sex Change, which was always a source of great amusement to the community. <laughs> uh, but... What worked about this site was that it had really good programming information. Like there was programmers talking to each other about like, how do I do this? How do I do this? So you would do Google searches and you would get a lot of hits to this site. But the problem is this site had a very used car sales attitude towards what information it wanted to show you. It wanted you to pay them money to get, quote, the answer. And so it was really frustrating. You would get search results to the site and it would be like walking on a used used car sales lots. Like, hey, buddy, I see you want to buy a car. I see you're looking for some info. Maybe we can show you. Maybe we can. I don't know. How much money can you give us? And it just felt terrible. So people hated it. So the gen genesis of the idea was this, like this site, but much more community friendly. Let's build something like this that's actually friendly to programmers, shows you the answer, is Creative Commons licensed. So all the information is, is part of the world. It's not like information that can be hidden behind a paywall necessarily. And that was it. That was the genesis of the idea for, for uh, Stack Overflow was let's just do this, which is clearly working, but in a much more community-friendly way uh, and, and scale it up, you know, and, and see how programmers can help each other learn stuff. 
Yeah, of course. Um, and and those kind of discussion groups, I mean, it seems like you've been involved in building um, healthy community, productive community, uh, websites like that. Um, but of course, on the other side of things, 4chan and 8chan have seen uh, a kind of rise in these kind of um, anonymous boards, uh, you know, have kind of come to be and been involved with quite a few um, issues. Uh, you know, what do you think about 4chan and 8chan and, and why do you think they've become what they are now? Well, the reason Stack Overflow works, one of the observations I made early on was that YouTube comments, which everybody hates and for good reason, right? So the archetypal terrible comment stream is, is on YouTube. Uh, I noticed that an odd phenomenon, like on YouTube, some videos actually had really good comments. And this surprised me because you would think, okay, YouTube just has shit comments. Everything sucks there. So, but you would go to a video and you're like, wow, these comments are really good. Like these are interesting comments about the video that makes sense. And I was like, how is that even possible? Right? Well, there's a big difference. What happens is if the video is really narrow, if the video is kind of technical and kind of narrow and like only a certain percent of people would even know what the heck is going on in that video. Um, then you had good conversation on the video, surprisingly. When you had bad conversation, it would be like, I don't know, a Taylor Swift video or like some ridiculous meme video that just appealed to everyone. So if you had networks of interest where people were, were dealing with very specific things that are usually work-related, they could have conversations about that stuff without it degenerating into nonsense. So if you apply that logic to like something like 4chan, which was like, oh, it's just a chat board. We'll talk about literally anything here. It's like that's when the red flags should start going off and klaxon bells in your head of like, this is dangerous. Because if you have a site that's about anything, people will turn it into the weirdest, weirdest stuff, right? And they'll just yell at each other constantly because there's no focus to what they're doing, right? Like, it, A, it doesn't matter. There's no consequence to any of this stuff, which oddly enough makes people hate each other even more the the least the less the consequences the more people will argue about stuff right but compare that with something like stack overflow where it's like some java question how many people in the world are going to give a shit about this java question right not many to start with because how many people know java how many people are programming you've already narrowed your world so considerably that your odds of survival in terms of like you know just looking at what they're doing and having it be on topic um, I'm not judging whether it's good or bad. I'm just saying, can we have a conversation about this without yelling at each other? If we're talking about a Java problem, the odds of that happening go up really, really a lot, right? Whereas if it's about what's your favorite anime character, then you're in serious trouble already, right? Because it's such a wide topic. There's no right or wrong answer. We can't even verify what an answer would be in this context. So, you know, I think that's part of your problem. That's what we're trying to avoid with Stack Overflow is stay very narrow, somewhat technical, really things that can be verified, right? Um, so once you step out of that world into 4chan, I mean, you know, it's it's just the, the world. Like, it's just one big pile of, of social stuff that's incredibly hard to manage. And they don't even try, right? That's the other problem with 4chan is, like, it's the Wild West, literally. Like, they don't, they don't do any... I mean, they have a very limited form of oversight. And I think 8chan, isn't 8chan, like, the, the spinoff where they're like, no, 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 4chan has too many rules. Yeah. Screw you guys. We're going to somewhere where there's even less rules. <laughs> yeah, the teenager who developed 4chan grew up and uh, started to ask people to not, you know, make death threats and post child pornography. And that's when everyone was like, you know, I think that the, 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 the straw that broke the camel's back was when he said that they could no longer discuss Gamergate. And that created a huge uh, kind of uh, exodus towards 8chan, which had also been developed, of course, by a teenager. So there was, you know, kind of very little... Um, 
let's say, moral framework going into either of the creations. But it's, it is interesting that, you know, uh, you know, people who want to discuss white supremacy, people who want to discuss um, pedophilia and, and feel like they're part of that community. I mean, those people out there do exist. And so they will, of course, take over 8chan or 4chan and create um, a channel for, for themselves there. Because, you know, like you said, I mean, the only way to truly keep everything productive is if, first of all, it's a kind of productive goal. There's something qu- quantifiable. Right. Um, so, so I mean, is there just from the lessons you've learned on a more technical level, what would you uh, give as advice to bo- both, you know, people uh, running 4chan, 8chan, but also these larger structures that are now dealing with like, how, how do we moderate? How do we censor? Well, I think as a programmer, one thing that we're, we have a lot of sympathy for is we love rules. Like, I mean, we live within the constraints of an insane rule-based systems. And religions are kind of like insane rule-based systems, if you think about it. That's another weird parallel between Temple OS and just regular programming. So you're living within these very structured rule systems where thou shalt, thou shalt not. I mean, my God, rules are like bread and butter to programmers, right? So for me to come up to Stack Overflow and say, look, we're going to have a system with tons of rules – Programmers like, okay, I get this, right? Like, that's what I do. Like, I live in systems that have tons of arbitrary rules. I'm cool with arbitrary rules. So I'm already dealing with people that are like, okay, with rules. So if if your table stakes are like, fuck you guys, I hate rules, I can do whatever I want, like, that's so alien to me as a programmer, kind of as a person, to be honest. Like, I'm kind of a square in a lot of ways. Like, I like rules and I like strictness, right? And I think a lot of programmers do. So that sort of anarchic no rules, do whatever we want, I think is, is, is where you immediately start to have problems because it's really hard to survive in a no rule scenario, right? Like, where does that even go? You know, like, yeah. I think for, for, for you to start a community, like and what we're doing, for example, with this course is like, you start out with like a lot of rules about like, look, this is how we're going to treat each other. This is how we're going to deal with people that don't treat each other nicely here. This is how we're going to deal with people who don't deal fairly with other people in the community. Right. And also like, what beyond that, like the idea for discourse is, look, there should be thousands or millions of these sites. There's not one giant Facebook, which then has to struggle with what do we allow on the site? Because technically we allow all human activity. Every human being should have a Facebook account. Well, I reject that entire theology, right? Like I don't think there should be a system, yeah. one mega system, where every man, woman, and child on earth should have an account because you've already – made the rules so difficult at that point. Like, I think there should be tons of communities that have very strict rules about what they will and will not allow, like from the outset. Yeah. You know, I think that's literally the first thing you should do. If you're setting up a community, the first thing you should do is decide this is what we allow. This yeah. is what we don't allow. So you're, it, you're saying basically you're pro-mod wars and you're anti-boardroom decisions. Uh, kind of. Now, there, there, there's still cases where this goes horribly wrong, of course, because you're dealing with people. So there's an infinity, infinity of ways this is going to go horribly wrong for you. So I do think one thing we've advised people at this course is you cannot have the rule of one person. The rule of one person, I mean, it can be good if you're lucky, but if things get weird with that one person, you're in serious trouble. So you need to have like a group of people making decisions. I mean, ideally somewhat in public, not every decision should be public, but I, the important thing is you have a group of people making decisions collaboratively about, you know, moder- moderating kind of stuff, right? The future yeah. of this community. And I think one of the reasons 4chan maybe had problems is, you know, it was just mood. It was just the one guy, yeah. you know, and no matter how, t- how good you are, I have actually no comment about whether mood was good, bad at the stuff. It doesn't matter. 
it needs to be a group of people making decisions somewhat in a, in a public way for things to work. And so, I mean, certainly in the 80s and 90s, you know, hacking and Internet culture uh, had a certain punk spirit. Does do you think that punk spirit still exists and still lives on? Or are we basically doomed to deal with Pepe's forevermore as the Internet grows to be ruled over by tech corporations? And these Pepe's are allowed to cast themselves as the new misfits because, you know, people inevitably crack down on their stuff. Well, there's a term for this stuff. It's called emotional labor. And like as a dude, I'm not necessarily good at that stuff, but I do actually agree what you have to have. I can give you an example of sort of an anarchic community that we run a discourse. Uh, well, the, the software, we don't run it literally, but the software powering it is discourse. And it's the Boing Boing discussion forums, the Boing Boing BBS. And this is sort of happy mutants, right? This is sort of your anarchist, you know, early internet culture. And they, Boing Boing, Boing has been doing this for a long time. I mean, it's really an honor to be associated with Boing Boing because they have such a storied history of trying to do community online. And it does require emotional labor. The people in charge have to be willing to put in the effort to make this stuff work. It does not come for free because anytime you throw a lot of people in a room together, there's going to be people, people that hate each other. There's going to be people that you know, want to tear the system up. There's going to be a, a certain amount of churn. No yeah. matter how fancy you make the software, software cannot solve this for you entirely. It can definitely make it easier. I will say that. But if you don't have the commitment to say, I will spend an hour today thinking about the problems facing this community and really thinking about them, really listening to people, then you're screwed. Yeah. You're, it's not going to work. There's no there's no Google API you're going to run that's going to let you, yeah. you know, moderate your community for you. Like you, there's a certain amount of like literal emotional labor you have to be willing to do to run a community. And if you're not willing to do it, you shouldn't actually have a community because it's going to go badly at some point um, once you sort of walk away from it and just let it fester, right? And one thing we try to do in discourse is as you participate in the community, you gain power um, to, to, to sort of be a community um, I guess the, what's the right word? <laughs> Not moderator, but like a, a watch, maybe a, a neighborhood watch, if you will. Mm -hmm. Like you're sort of empowered to point out problems and actually have stuff happen. Even if all the moderators walked away, one of the fantasy scenarios for us at Discourse is you set up a community, let's say for your podcast, right? A bunch of people go there and then you just leave. You're like, I'm bored. I don't have time for this. You guys do whatever, right? This happens all the time, right? And then these communities are just left on their own with literally no oversight. So you ask yourself, when does it become the Lord of the Flies, right? Like, yeah. at what point do you dump a bunch of people on an island, and when do they start eating each other like cannibals, right? So the, the challenge with the software is like, how can you build a software so that the island itself naturally has sort of administrative oversight stuff that 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 evolves along with the community, right? Even yeah. if the owners walk away. It's a really hard problem, and it's – ultimately, I don't think it's solvable. Like, I think you still need oversight. Like – it's really hard for the community to deal with all that stuff by itself without like sort of a cabal of a couple people helping out, uh, you know, up above, right? The, the God figures, if you will. Um, but you can survive longer for sure. And that's what we're trying to map with discourse is like, how can communities survive longer? How can we build better tools for the people running the community? So it's easier for them to do the emotional labor. Yeah. But you have to commit to it at some level. You just do. Um, well, before uh, I let you go, would you like to plug anything? Primarily just discourse, because discourse is our system of sort of open source community building that's sort of the alternative to Facebook, where you can actually have your own community, set your own rules, make sure they're sustainable, and it's at discourse.org. 
Fantastic. People can also follow you on Twitter. At Coding Horror on Twitter. And then, of course, at CodingHorror.com. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Jeff. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Blessed Patreon subscriber, you've been listening to another premium episode of QAnon Anonymous. Thank you once again for subscribing. If you're listening to this episode because we unlocked it, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash QAnon Anonymous. For just five bucks a month, you'll get a second episode every week for free, plus access to all the ones we've already recorded. Listener, until next week, may the deep dish bless you and keep you. It's not a conspiracy, it's fact. And now, today's auto cue. This is a cover of Terry Davis's Temple OS Hymn Risen. It was performed by David Eddy.